Let's, let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to help us today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, Lord, as the King of ages, the Ancient of Days. Oh, we recognize your absolute, universal, eternal sovereignty over all time, over every epoch of time. In every age, Lord, you reign supreme. And Lord, we are reminded today of our great eternal hope our great eschatological hope that will be fulfilled when Your Son returns to this planet. Lord, forgive us for so quickly losing sight of that hope. Forgive us for not living with an eternal perspective, Lord, daily as we think about all the trials that befall us in this world, all of the things that we are beset with. It's so easy, Lord, to get our eyes off of our heavenly hope. And so we pray to that end today, Lord, that you would help us, that you would restore to us, Lord, our heavenly vision, and that you would truly give us that hope that others do not have, that we have been granted mercifully, graciously, sovereignly in the gospel. And Father, I pray that uh, we would avail ourselves today to the means of grace, that we would open up our hearts, open up our minds, open up our lives for Your grace to come in, to minister to us, to build us up, to equip us, Lord, to live righteous and holy in the present evil age. Father, we also pray that You would instruct us by way of Your good doctrine. Eschatology is such a tough subject. It's so perplexing. It's many complexities at times is daunting. It's intimidating. And for that reason, many of your people shy away from the study of eschatology. And we pray that that would not be us, O Lord. We pray that we would press in, that we would dig in, that we would study to know you and to know more about this great hope that you have set before us, this purifying hope, even as John teaches in John chapter 3, that everybody who has this hope purifies themselves. And so, Lord, we pray that this hope would have that practical sanctifying effect upon our lives, that it would, in effect, make us more holy, even as we await the Holy One to return. Help us now, God. Encourage us, Lord. Embolden us, Lord. Restore that hope in our hearts, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're studying eschatology, and we haven't been here as a church for a long time. There's can't remember the verse the last time we were actually in eschatology for any length of time. I think it was back in Hebrews chapter 1. That's a long time ago. But there's no way around it. There's no way to escape it. Uh, today, this whole passage is about eschatology, and it is glorious uh, to really set our minds on these things because uh, I want to talk to you today about our future hope, our future hope. Now, Paul's opening words here remind us of how important eschatology is, not just because it's important practically. In other words, it should speak to us. It should influence our lives. It should have a practical impact every day upon us, but also because there are dangers with eschatology, even as there were with Paul's uh, church here. 
uh, in Thessalonica. There was those sort of influences around the church. And we're going to see that even more in the second letter, particularly in chapter 2, that the Apostle Paul there makes it very clear that there were those who, through eschatological theology, were actually upsetting the faith of the church. And so that's another reason why it's important to know what it is that you believe about the future. And um, uh, that, that's not an easy task if we're honest with ourselves. Eschatology tends to be one of the last things we want to study because it can be so difficult to study. Um, but, um, you know, I was talking to Trish about eschatology uh, last night, and she uh, confessed that, boy, this is daunting, and it's hard for her to understand it all. I said, yeah, we'll join the club, you know. Try, try having to preach on it. But there are certain things here, like in Thessalonians, that are very clear that you don't have to be an eschatological expert to believe in these things and to know these things. And so, so that's what I really want to get into today. Really, I'm going to be using a Greek word throughout this sermon that you're going to have to be very acquainted with. The Greek word is the word parousia. The word parousia just means coming. Uh, it refers to the second coming of Christ. And so the parousia or the parousia, however you inflect your uh, diphthongs there in the Greek text, uh, th- this is the seminal issue in this text. We're looking at what happens when Christ's return. And for that reason, I'm going to be disagreeing with many people uh, in terms of eschatology. For example, we're going to be looking at dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. Boy, that's a mouthful. And tell you why, I don't agree that what Paul is talking about here is something like the secret rapture of the church seven years prior to the tribulation period, prior to the second coming, and prior to the millennium. Everybody got their eschatological timeline in their mind? Good. I think what Paul is setting in front of us is nothing less than the second coming of Jesus Christ back to judge the living and the dead. It is that great ultimate eschatological event that will end the world and begin a new world. I think that's what he has in mind here. But let's work through the text and, uh, and let's see the various aspects of our future hope. And that's the first point. Is As Paul works through this, he's going to emphasize a number of things. He's going to speak to us regarding not only the hope of the, hu- of the future, but he's going to speak to us regarding the power of our future, the order, and last of all, by application, the comfort of our future. So the very first thing is the hope of our future. And you see that right at the beginning of the text. He says, he says that he doesn't want us to be uninformed because he doesn't want us to grieve as those that have no hope. So that's really what he's zeroing in on here, is that eschatology ought to provide us with hope. Now, Paul places two responsibilities on the church here as we think about this, and as he goes on in his exposition, the Apostle Paul first uh, wants the believers to be informed. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. So that, you know, again, that just calls us to uh, be... uh, Bereans of the Word of God, to rightly divide the Word of truth, and to give ourselves over to a study of eschatology, to not be afraid to be informed regarding these things. We cannot be ignorant of eschatology. We can't afford to be ignorant about these things. And therefore, he doesn't want them to be ignorant, number one, about personal eschatology, and he doesn't want them to be ignorant about cosmic eschatology. 
When theologians speak of personal eschatology, what they're talking about is what happens to you at death. What happens to the soul? What happens to the individual that dies before the cosmic final eschatology or the ending of the world? The Apostle Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant regarding either of those things. And so you need to have a proper view. I remember talking to a, a Christian uh, sister that had been saved for many, many years. And she was unaware that at the resurrection that, she, that her physical body would be resurrected. In other words, she thought it was going to be an entirely new body and that the old body was discarded and done away with for good. You see, this is why it's important to study eschatology. Personal eschatology tell, tells us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear there, that it is this body that will be resurrected. Just like it was Jesus' physical body that rose from the grave, it is these bodies, no matter what you do to them, doesn't matter if you uh, scatter your ashes on uh, the ocean and not advocating cremation. I don't believe actually that's in the biblical worldview. It's uh, actually not biblical to cremate. That's nowhere find, found in Scripture. Historically, it was the pagans who cremated their, their people. But, um, but at any rate, I don't want to, you know, there's no condemnation if you've ever went to a funeral, you had family member cremated or something like that. But what I'm saying is that in keeping with the biblical worldview, we bury our dead in the hope of resurrection. That's why we do it. But at the same time, it doesn't matter what you do to the body. You can scatter the, o- the ashes, like I said, on the ocean. Or, you know, if you're Elon Musk, maybe you'll shoot your ashes into space or something. It doesn't matter. God is going to regather your body, even if it comes down to the particles. God will regather your body somehow, and there will be a correspondence with your original body to the new body. Isn't that just amazing to think about? In the same way, cosmic eschatology, that's going to deal with the ending of the world. That's going to deal with the coming of of a new age. That's going to deal with the emergence of the new heaven and the new earth at the end of the age. All of these things we are simply not allowed to be ignorant about. The other thing that Paul does wants us to be responsible for here is being responsible to grieve properly. Uh, This is uh, very important. He says, One of the purposes of why he's writing this, he says, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now, interesting, he doesn't introduce who the rest are. Uh, If you want an antecedent, perhaps it goes back to verse 12 where he speaks about outsiders, which is a synonym for unbelievers. So what Paul is saying is that the rest of the unbelieving mankind, the mass of humanity outside of Jesus Christ, outside of God's salvation, they grieve in a way that is hopeless, but the church is to grieve in a different way. We are to grieve in a proper way. We are to grieve ultimately knowing that those who are dead in Christ, those die with hope. And uh, it is the issue is not hopeless. That's the whole point. And this is not easy to do. You think it is. You remember, you recall when Jesus allowed his good friend Lazarus in John chapter 11, when he allowed him to die, he came to his sister, Martha and Mary, and they said to him, Lord, if you'd only been here, our brother would have stayed alive. He says, well, your brother will rise again. And they said, yeah, we know at the resurrection of us all, in a sense, they had no faith in the resurrection. They didn't trust in the resurrection. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a hope that they had. They were grieving in a hopeless way. 
In one sense, brothers and sisters, there can be nothing greater to happen to a Christian but then that you die and you await the resurrection. So, I mean, really, uh, you know, a Christian funeral should consist of both grieving and celebrating. The world would probably think you're absolutely mad. No, not celebrating, you know, as the world may tend to celebrate the memory of some departed person, celebrating the good times they had at a party or something like that. No, we celebrate because that person is in the presence of Jesus Christ. That person is in the presence of God. That person's warfare is over. And now what awaits them is nothing but eternal bliss, either in the intermediary state or in the resurrection. Either way... Here he tells us that the rest of them have no hope. Brothers and sisters, the reason eschatology is so important because it's so sobering. It reminds us what the world is truly comprised of. Only two kinds of people. Those who have hope and those who have no hope. And for those who have no hope, this world is as good as it gets. And when everything is ripped away from them at death whether it's family or spouses or children or parents or friends or whatever, they grieve with an aimless anguish. Uh, Part of that reason why is because they grieve based on ignorance. They don't know what has happened to their departed. They have no concrete truth to rely on. Think about it. It's hopeless because it lacks the knowledge and the wisdom of God. But there are those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, and those who fall asleep in Jesus have hope. And the reason why is because of the power of our hope. That's the next point, is the power of our hope. Not just the the hope of our future, but the power of our future, rather. The power of our future is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look with me again to the text. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we have hope. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, because all of our hope is banking on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Peter, uh, Paul went so far as in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 19 to say that, in fact, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we are miserable in our sin. We are to be pitied. In other words, what he's saying is we're not only hopeless, but our whole faith is a mockery. It's empty. And therefore, it's important to understand that on the basis of his resurrection, we have the power of our resurrection. Look at Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. He's telling us what happens symbolically at baptism. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that's an interesting phrase, the glory of the Father there primarily displayed in the power of the Father. So we too might walk in newness of life, having become united with Him in the likeness of His death. Certainly, underline that word, brothers and sisters, when you are in need of hope. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Praise God. Because we're united to Him spiritually, we will be united to Him physically. That is, through physical resurrection. The Thessalonians fear that deceased believers would somehow miss out on the eschatological blessings of Christ and His kingdom 
were unfounded. Now, why did they have that misconception? Why are they so worried about what happens to those that die in Jesus? What led to the confusion? Well, it could be a number of things. I mean, uh, culturally, remember who these Thessalonians are. I mean, they belong to a city in the very hub of the pagan world. And part of that pagan philosophy was that the deceased have no hope. As a matter of fact, an ancient poet by the name of Theocritus said it. He said, quote, hope is for the living, but those who die are without hope. This was a predominant uh, 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 Greco-Roman worldview. This was Plato's worldview and other pre-Socratic philosophers had the same worldview. The, the view was that there is no knowledge of the dead. There is no knowing what happens to the dead. There is no hope for the dead. There is, there is nothing that we can know. We can never attain to that understanding because man was ultimately bound only to this world. Also, the Bible teaches in the early, uh, you know, the Bible of the early church, I'll remind you, was not the New Testament, it was the Old Testament, right? Especially First Thessalonians, a letter that was written so early in the early church, in the history of the church. The Old Testament is their text. Well, when you go to the Old Testament, you can string together a lot of passages concerning resurrection life, but there's just not a clear, whole, uh, a, a totally full-orbed theology of resurrection until really the New Testament. Matter of fact, this led to the scribes and the, and the, and the, uh, the Sadducees, that they, oh, excuse me, the Pharisees and the Sadducees having a complete divergence of opinion on the whole matter of the resurrection. The Sadducees even denied that the resurrection was real. This is how confused they were about what the Old Testament was teaching. In other words, they needed understanding. But there's another reason. Look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is what I told you about a minute ago. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, kind of reminds us that whatever was going on in the situation there with this church in Thessalonica, apparently there was the influence of false teaching regarding eschatology. That's why Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit, and that right there, that reference to spirit is probably referring to some false teacher. Uh, Certainly that's the way John uses the word spirit in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And he says, or a message or a letter as from us, some, some fraudulent letter claiming to be from an apostle. To the effect, watch this now, that the day of the Lord has come. So someone is influencing the Thessalonians with what is known as an over-realized eschatology. This concept that the day of the Lord, the whole eschatological move of God has already taken place. And therefore, those who die will not take part in any future blessings eschatologically in Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul is probably trying to correct. And now to refute that, Paul insists, look at the text, God will bring with him, that is with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, Paul's argument is that those who have fallen asleep, which is a synonym for death, a euphemism really, are actually in a privileged position because they died first, they will be resurrected first. Having been united with Christ mystically, God will bring them, ago, the Greek word to bear them up even, to bring them with Christ 
in his own physical parousia, a second coming. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There are many parallels to what Paul's talking about here in Thessalonians. And 1 Corinthians is critical. Jesus proves to be the first fruits of the resurrection. In a close parallel, where Paul uses the same language, the same themes, the same basic order of events as in Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul encourages the Corinthians that they will overcome death. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. By the way, in the Gospels where Jesus, Jesus resurrects from the dead, there is an epiphany that takes place. There is a theophanic power that is unleashed temporarily. Remember? It says that bodies came out of the tombs and out of their graves and started wandering around the streets of Jerusalem. What is that about? It was just an indication, a token, if you would, that Jesus was, in fact, the first fruits. That when he rises, people rise right after him. And that was just a small, a, a, a small glimpse of what would ultimately happen on a cosmic level. Amazing. He says this, verse 21, For since, a man, for since by a man came death, and by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. This is what he means. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So those that belong to Jesus will rise at the coming of Jesus Christ. Then comes the end. Wow. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Boy, that's so glorious. I was thinking about this. I'm like, how am I going to get out of this verse? It's so amazing. I can't. But, you know, think about it. What he's saying here is that when Jesus Christ comes, not only it's, it's the end of what? It's the end of the present age. It's the end of all human rule, human authority, human power belonging to a fallen world in Adam. And he must reign, it says, until, this is the point, until he has put all his enemies under his feet so that when Christ returns, the second coming is Jesus subjecting his enemies under his feet. It's the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 110. That's where this comes from. All the enemies under his feet is again referring back to Psalm 110. And the book of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that Psalm 110 is everything that Je- that's going on today in the world. Jesus has been ascended. He's at the right hand of God. He rules and he reigns. He's seated on the throne in heaven. And he is ruling over his enemies. It may not appear that way right now. But make no, no mistake about it. There is only one person that is in control of the universe, and it's not man or persons. We can say the triune God there. All you Trinitarians, calm down. You know what I meant. It is the God of Scripture. It is the triune God. And Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, which speaks of the total position of power to reign and subdue His enemies. But now, that's not enough. The Apostle Paul wants to actually get into the actual order of events of the parousia, the second coming and the resurrection of the dead and of his people that are alive at his second coming. And so that moves us to the order of our future. And this is where you know, things get controversial. So 
Buckle in. Before Paul sets the order of the future events regarding death and the resurrection and their relationship to the second coming, first he qualifies all this by saying that this is not his opinion. Look what he says. He says, For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord. Now that's, a, that's actually a controversial a phrase because you have to determine what does he mean by that. Does he simply mean by the word of the Lord, meaning something like by God's authority? Does he mean something like by way of revelation? That's certainly a possibility, and that's true for sure. But I'm with the commentators that, that uh, argue that what Paul is, uh, what he's appealing to when he says by the word of the Lord is he's appealing to the teaching of Jesus. Uh, the teaching, because there, kurios is referring to Jesus, not the Father. And so what he's, if, if, if in fact he's saying this, and I, most commentaries suggest he is, then what he's appealing to is something like the Gospels in Matthew chapter 24, especially where Jesus teaches these same basic rudimentary principles that you find right here. It's really amazing. Jesus taught the same elements, the same features, the same things that you find here in Paul are found in Jesus when he speaks about his return, his resurrection, and the believer's death and their resurrection as well, all of it related to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a phrase that comes up in chapter 5. But also verse 15 is important. Look what he says here. He says in verse 15, He says, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Well, I know you're looking at us like, man, that is a mouthful. How are we going to get through all that? Well, it's step one. <laughs> we have to recognize that the very first thing that happens is that Paul gives us three very clear steps of eschatology, three things that have to happen in sequence. Number one, Christ himself will trigger the eschaton. When he returns, he sets into motion everything else. That's why he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. Now those three features there, three facets of his coming, um, really prophetic signs, that whole concept of a shout, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. These are all just eschatological features that surround the event known as the second coming. Now, although pre-tribulationalists and dispensationalists have concluded that this passage is actually teaching a silent rapture of the church prior to the second coming, I I say I think the text speaks to the complete opposite. Uh, This is anything but a silent rapture. Did you read the text? Number one, There will be a shout. And trust me, that wasn't as loud as what you'll hear. There will be the voice of the archangel, which is going to be a a clarion call to war. That's the implication. The archangel is the general of the angelic beings of heaven, and he will be calling for an all-out war on the rebellion that that is going to transpire at the... Perusia. Incredible. 
And also, there will be the trumpet of God. All those three things. All of those things. There will be a shout. There will be a cry of command. Jesus Christ will sound forth this cosmic cry of command. And really indicative of the fact that the final hour is here. Now, I want you to do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24 because we have to correlate this. Because not only will there be this shout that happens when Jesus is literally descending upon the world, a clarion call of salvation and judgment, a triumphal procession that will go from heaven to earth, signaling that the end of the age has come, there's also going to be, like he says here, this archangel, a warrior being, who will come in great power and authority with an angelic delegation to do the king's bidding. And in Matthew 24, it's either for scattering, excuse me, for gathering people for salvation, or this is the verse, Matthew 13, verse 40 and 42. I wonder how many of you actually account for this, that when Jesus Christ comes again, the angel, part of the angel's jobs will be literally to consign people to hell. It says in Matthew 13, verse 40 and 42, that they will literally be commanded to go and grab the unbelievers, the wicked, those who are in rebellion to the gospel, who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they will consign them to hell. The angels will do that. Wow. And there will be the trumpet of God. Now, biblically, in the Bible, the trumpet is an amazing uh, feature of a theophany. Uh, all throughout biblical theology, you see this. In Exodus chapter 19, the trumpet sound that accompanies Sinai, the great thunder and cloud and lightning and thund- and trumpets that the people heard. It's also used, obviously, for worship throughout the Psalms. But it's also used in the Psalms for eschatology. Psalm 47 verse 5 speaks about a trumpet in association to the Lord, to the day of the Lord. Isaiah 27, Zephaniah Zephaniah chapter 1, many different places speak about how a trumpet is imagery of the end of the world. And obviously in Revelation chapter 8, that unleashes all the eschatological trumpets of God. Every time a trumpet blasts, a different woe is pronounced upon the earth. A different level of judgment is coming. Look at, if you're still in Matthew 24, The reason I had you turn there is because verses 29 to 31 have, again, many of the same exact features that are found. I think G.K. Beale lists about 10 or 15 exact features from Matthew 24 to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And yet, and yet, not to keep harping back on controversy or where I disagree with people, but yet the pre-tribulationalists, pre-millennial dispensationalists would say that Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians are two different events. That Thessalonians is a quiet, silent rapture, and that Matthew 24 is the second coming. I don't, I don't think so. I think they are parallels. Matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that Paul is pulling from Matthew 24 to, to substantiate his eschatological theology. Verse 29 says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's exactly what Hebrews says, actually, Hebrews, 20, uh, Hebrews 12. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, just like in Thessalonians, in the sky with 
power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels, the presence of angelic beings, again, with a great trumpet, the same trumpet as in Thessalonians. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds. And this is the same comfort that uh, Paul wants the church to take now is that God is going to gather his elect from all the four winds, which basically means from every corner of the earth, God is going to deliver his people from one end of the sky to the other. The second coming triggers all of this. And the second thing that it triggers is that the dead in Christ will be resurrected first. That's what it says. The dead in Christ will rise first. This was really central to Paul's purpose here. Of course, this is the whole reason why he's writing this whole section in Thessalonians is because the church is petrified. What about those who have died that we know that are in Christ, but now they're dead? What happens to them when the eschaton comes? Have they missed out? Did they miss out on the, on the day of the Lord? When Jesus returns, are they going to be forsaken or forgotten? Of course not. They will not be forgotten. They will not be forsaken. In fact, they will have a privileged position. They will go first. They will be resurrected first. Their soul and their body will be reunited and instantly glorified at his coming. The third thing is that those of us who are alive during the... uh, Notice I said us. Isn't it comforting to say those of us who are alive at the return of Christ? Well, that's what Paul does. So I'm just following Paul. And by the way, Paul expected to be alive during the second coming. Isn't that remarkable? I like that because it means every single one of us should have that eschatological state of mind. We should all believe Christ could come and I could see the second coming. I may be living in the generation where that could happen. And uh, Paul certainly thought he was. And it was a great comfort and a great um, incentive for holiness. A lie, he says... Look at the text again. He says, Then we, verse 17, and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So so who's going to be caught up together? With whom? With them, namely with the Lord and with those who have died and resurrected. With them. We will be united with them and we will be caught up. Now, once again, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, another seminal parallel passage to what we're looking at here. I asked uh, Pastor Lynn, I said, uh, today is not the Lord's Supper, right? Yeah, good. Okay, good. So I was going to tell you, you better cut it short because this can be a long sermon. <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to keep you here all day, but I knew going into this, I won't be able to do this in 40 minutes or 45 minutes. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 says this, Now I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning flesh and blood that is understood temporally bound to this sinful world. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Uh, Meaning whether we sleep or not, we will all undergo transformation. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, there's another reference to the trump, for the trumpet will sound, and how do you know he's talking about the same thing? Because he says it, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, i.e. who are alive, will be changed, 
For the perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. See, the problem with pre-tribulational, dispensational, premillennialism, did I get that all out right? The problem with the pre-tribbers, sorry, that sounds, that sounds pejorative, but I don't mean it that way. I used to be a pre-tribber. I used to be a dispensational, premillennialist, pre-tribulation. All the pre's, just say pre and that was me. I don't believe that now because I think one of the fundamental errors that pre-trib theology makes is that they assume that the second coming of Jesus cannot be both a coming with his saints and for his saints. But that seems to be precisely what the apostle is arguing here in Thessalonians. He comes with his saints and for his saints. He comes with those who have already departed and he comes for those that are still alive at his coming. At his coming. There could be nothing more logical than this than to stipulate precisely how God was going to gather us in uniform fashion. That's the whole burden of why he's writing the letter, at least this section, to show us that we will be gathered together in Christ, with Christ at his coming, so that we can have eternal communion with God, gathered together so we can reign together, so we can triumph together over death and hell. In the same way, Paul has delineated the same events to the Corinthians and others, insisting that consequent to the second coming is the end. See, the reason why dispensational premillennial pre-tribulational theology is wrong is because they believe in four resurrections, not one. There's not one definitive resurrection of the living and the dead. There are four resurrections, if you're honest, with premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensational theology. There's the, the two resurrections of the living and the dead that happen around the rapture and the second coming. And then you have a resurrection that happens supposedly after the thousand years, the millennium, is over of all of the saints who died during the millennium. They have to be resurrected as well. The only other option, by the way, if you believe in a literal, physical millennium with children and people walking around that are not glorified, the only other option, I've had a dispensationalist tell me this, is that if a person, let's say during the millennium, becomes born again, they will instantaneously be transformed into their glorified body. So we're going to have like people... You know, praying the sinner's prayer in the millennium. I'm trying, not to, I'm trying not to characterize this, but let's say someone in the millennium is in their home and they're, you know, they're praying. I'll just use myself as an example. Let's say a 19-year-old kid is in his room late at night one night on his knees and repenting of his sin. Well, if that happens during the millennium, right there in that room, you'll be instantly glorified. That's a dispensational possibility. And then one more resurrection. At the end of the millennium, the wicked will be resurrected for the great white throne judgment. Four resurrections. If you're pre-tribulational, you know what I said. I don't think that's what Scripture teaches, obviously, for many, 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 many reasons more than what I can get here. You know, in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus speaks of one resurrection for both the righteous and the unrighteous. They'll hear one call by Christ and the dead in the tombs will come up either for everlasting life 
or everlasting death. That sounds like when Christ's return, everybody is resurrected and everybody is judged. However momentary, however instantaneous, however the time elapses for that to happen, I'm not sure. I just know that the second coming is the all-definitive eschatological event through which everything will transpire in that way. You know what the purpose of all of this for all of this eschatology is for? It's not to debate. I know that's necessary. We have to do it. And perhaps some of you are ready to debate me even now. Just wait till I get done and I get down and you can come up and that's fine. By the way, that's fine. I'm not one of those pastors that's like ready to like get out of here after the sermon like this. No, come. I actually want to be sharpened by you. What about this? What about that? Just get in line, okay? And just one at a time though, okay? No, this is perplexing stuff because there's so much out there by way of theology and positions and, and great men of God who disagree. I mean, think about it. I mean, let me, let me just try to give you an example of this. Okay, ready? Don't show this to any of these guys, but John MacArthur is a premillennialist. Uh, he is a dispensational premillennialist. John Piper is a historic premillennialist, so far as I know. Uh, you know, let's say another great man of God. R.C. Sproul was a post-millennial partial preterist. Well, now he knows the truth because he's already in glory. Then you have people like Sinclair Ferguson and others that are amillennialists. The majority of the reformers leading up to the Puritan, the end of the Puritan age in the 17th century were post-millennial. The people disagree on this stuff, and it's okay. Uh, the question is, is, is your position on eschatology orthodox? What is orthodox eschatology? You need to believe in a literal, physical, bodily, visible return of Jesus Christ to this earth to judge the living and the dead. Uh, the church long time ago labeled full preterism heresy. Preterism is some of what I think is going on here in Thessalonians, and that's why he kind of speaks of it as false teaching, because preterism teaches the idea that everything has already been fulfilled, kind of like what you hear in the second letter. The day of the Lord has already happened, right? No future eschatological events are left. Everything is done and fulfilled. A lot of preterists believe that at 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, that was the fulfillment of all Old Testament eschatology, and there's nothing left to be fulfilled. <laughs> of course, that's heresy. Jesus, and that the return of Christ is mainly a mystical thing, a spiritual thing, a, you know, think something that happens, you know, just uh, uh, spiritually within. No, he will return, like the angel said in Acts chapter 1, in the same way that you see him ascending into heaven in the clouds, in the same way, they say, he will return. And so we expect a, uh, a physical, bodily, visible, literal return of Jesus to the earth. But you know what all of this is for on a real practical note? Comfort. Look at the last verse. It says, well, look at, look at the end of verse 17. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these things. Really, that's kind of like a sermon in itself. Because that's the whole purpose for why he's writing. is so that you can comfort one another. Comfort each other that even though maybe perhaps some of our deceased loved ones... Whoever they are, whether they are family, parents, children, friends, people in the church, just people we know that have passed away and died, 
We know that we can have comfort in the Lord knowing that one day He'll gather us all together again. And that's what was missing when you lose a biblical, practical eschatology. He says, comfort one another with these words. You see, this is what distinguishes us from the world coming full circle. The wicked are not capable of this comfort. They don't have this comfort. And this comfort is a comfort to us not only in death but in life. What this life represents to the wicked now is a hopeless expression of a life devoid of the knowledge of God. When you start thinking of the wicked and the worldview of the unbeliever, it is really bleak. Devoid of the knowledge of God, they are hostile to God, Romans 8. They hate God, Romans 1. They're hostile to one another, Titus 3. They're futile in their pursuit of sensual pleasure, Hebrews eleven twenty five. They have an illusion only of temporal happiness, Ephesians chapter 4, James chapter 5. What does the preacher say in Ecclesiastes? It is a chasing after the wind. All the while, the impending wrath of God is looming on the horizon of a world that is now presently, according to Peter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, is now presently being preserved for wrath. They're asleep. And that's what Paul says in the next chapter. They are asleep. We are not asleep. We are alert, or we should be. In the next chapter, Paul reminds the church that we are not appointed to wrath like they are. See, this is something the wicked cannot take comfort in. This is why their conscience has no rest, their souls are not, never satisfied, and their future has no hope, at least not while they are in their sin. They have to come out of their sin. Turn to First Peter and we'll finish there. You know, this eschatology is meant to give us an indomitable hope the type of hope that you can build your life on, the type of hope, brothers and sisters, that you can lose your life on. Not just the type of hope to get you by, to minister to you and to calm you down and to grant you the peace of God, of course, but the hope also that makes you indomitable is the hope that makes you kind of crazy. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's hope. What is my life? I don't count it dear to myself. That's hope. What is my life? It is being poured out like an offering on the altar of the faith of the saints. That's because of hope. If Paul didn't have that resurrection hope, how does he become a martyr? He can't. He can't. But when you have that hope, oh man, not only does it keep you together at a funeral, it keeps you together out on the mission field. It keeps you together in your home. It keeps you together in your soul, in your mind. When your mind is playing tricks on you, when you're being unsettled and shaken, you better have a hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away. Man, everything in this world fades away. But this will never fade away. And it is reserved in heaven for you. Think of that. Ponder the thought of that. Use your name, me, 
My hope is reserved for me in heaven. It's there. It's like a ticket waiting my arrival. It's, I got a seat and it's reserved at a banqueting table. He knows my name. He knows my ways. He knows my life. He knows my days. And he's reserved a hope for me. That's, that's, that's enough to change your life. Isn't it? It's reserved in heaven for you. You are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I think the reason why I take the eschatology position that I do is because the last time, it just seems like the Bible teaches two ages, this age and the age to come. Pastor Lynn's like, yep, yep, that's right. Music to my ears. Uh, you know, it has a lot of implications for your, your view of the rapture. Do I believe in the rapture? Yeah, I do. Paul just talked about it. It happens when Jesus returns. So what are you saying? When Jesus returns, we go up and come right back down? Well, yeah, I guess. What's, what's wrong with going up and coming right back down? I, my view is like whatever Jesus wants to do. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, the time has run out. And your word is so glorious, Lord, so true, so satisfying, so challenging. And Lord, in the midst of the controversy, help us not to lose sight of the hope. Because if we do, it's not controversy that's potent. It's not controversy. It may appear that controversy is the potent, powerful part of eschatology. It's not. It is the, what's potent and powerful about eschatology is the hope that it ought to produce. And so, Lord, I pray that you would produce that hope and that with that hope, we as a church would comfort one another. Have a practical expression in our community. Help us to remember, Lord, that it... The reason why you saved us is to obtain us. That the reason that you enlightened our heart was so that we would be your inheritance, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. Oh Lord, what can we say to such grace, such great mercy? We say thank you. We say hallelujah and amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand.